Amen, amen. Good morning, church. Hey, just before we start, let me just say, if you've never served at summer camp, sign up and serve at summer camp. Uh, it's an absolute blast. I did it for several summers. I, I was put in charge of model rockets. And so I would get all the kids that wanted to have something to do with fire and the potential for personal injury. And uh, so every year, you know, we'd get a little more brave. And, and then finally I bought this big rocket, you know, one of these sort of Russian Scud missile-sized rockets. You know, a great big thing. And all the kids were excited. We shot that baby off and thing went up and beautiful arc. The parachute didn't open. And it arced over and it came down and went right through the roof of one of our portables. And they loved it. I didn't get asked the next year to serve. Actually, they, you know what they did? They asked the youth pastor. Now, there's something wrong when they feel the youth pastor is less dangerous than the lead pastor. Do you know what I mean? There's something wrong. But serve at summer camp. It's a blast. Open your Bibles to the book of Ruth as we carry on in our series. This morning, I want to talk about what is past is prologue. In other words... God is taking everything in your life and he's going to, if you allow him, aggregate it together and he's going to use it for your benefit and for his glory. Now, you may say this morning, gosh, I got some stuff in my background. Like I got some rugged stuff, some painful stuff. Can that be possible? Yes, it can. Absolutely. Without a doubt. So let's pray and we're going to jump in. Okay. Father God, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And Father, now as we look back in the rearview mirror, as it were, and reflect on what is behind us and think about what is ahead of us and realize that you are good and you are sovereign, and so we trust you with all that has happened and all that will happen. And so we look forward to the days ahead. And so for those who, as we've sung this morning, as Galen led us, that feel like they're hurting and broken within, may this be a time of healing and a time of hopefulness and a time of new freedom from that which may uh, have some captivity on someone this morning. And so we trust you, Lord. We love you. We want you to hear that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles here, we're going to start reading the text. And we're going to uh, begin at uh, chapter 2, verse number 20. This is the word of the Lord. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. Of course, this is Boaz. We talked about this last week. Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the field of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The closing verses of 
this chapter show Naomi's recognition of God's kindness. And as she heard Ruth's account of what has just taken place, and she saw Ruth returning, sort of laden with barley, and Naomi responds and says, you know, someone has been generous to us. Who is that? And of course, then she says, may the Lord bless him, because despite all the bitter things I have experienced, the Lord has not stopped showing kindness to me. And, oh yeah, you know, that Boaz, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, sound guys, you're going to hate me again today, but I hear an echo again. Is it inside of my head? Okay, if you can help me, that would be good, because I literally am an ADD person, and it's really hard for me to pay attention, and I just downloaded this sermon this morning, so <laughs> I'm kidding. I said that one time preaching at a conference, and a lady came and said, you really should do your own sermons, and I said, I, Who is, that's perfect. Whatever you did, let's hear it for the sound guys. They always get, you know, hassled. <laughs> Boaz is a relative with a special God-given responsibility to help us, Naomi realizes. And as Ruth then told Naomi what Boaz said to her, we can imagine the cogs in the, in the mind of Naomi beginning to turn perhaps not wanting to rush ahead, but wondering what is in store for Boaz and for Ruth? What, what, what does God have for us? Now, what a difference a day can make, amen? What a difference. Uh, you, you know, evidence of the Lord's lavish favor on these two women. This, this day gave Naomi renewed hope for the future that only hours earlier had looked bleak and dark. What a difference a taste of the Lord's favor has made in her life. Now, let's be straight up and acknowledge, right? There's things that hadn't changed about her circumstances. She's still a widow. She had lost two sons. She continues to have material needs. Life is hard, but she had a hope-giving experience with the Lord, which gives her reason to believe that while the Lord's anger lasts for a moment, his favor lasts for a lifetime. Amen? absolutely does. And so what is right for Naomi is also right for us. And the closing of chapter two there, friends, that we've just read, is really the hinge of the story. The hinge of the story that life is difficult, but there is hope in the midst of the difficulty. And when you think about Naomi and what she's gone through, you know, and sometimes I, I look at people in my own life who've went through immense difficulty and I'm like, Lord, how much can they take? But then chapter 3 will open with the dawning of hope. This worthy man, a man of valor named Boaz, steps into the midst of a difficult life. And as chapter 2 closes, we get a sense that all that has happened was preparation for now what we are going to see. All of the difficulty of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2, uh, the life, the loss, the difficulty, the disappointment, the going down uh, to, to Moab for a better life, losing her sons, her husband, coming back with a daughter-in-law that she knows is likely not going to fit into the culture in which she returns, coming back and having people acknowledge that's Naomi. Wow, life's been hard on her. She looks sullen and she looks broken and hurting. And she is. Remember, she's bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt harshly with me. 
Wow, what a background. What a background. The past, however, for the Christian is prologue. The past is preparation, even, and sometimes even more so, when the past is painful. But we can learn from that. In 1994, my wife, Cheryl, and I sold our house, and we left our jobs, and we loaded everything into a U-Haul truck, and we drove to Atlanta for a new adventure, a new ministry. And we were excited about that. We arrived in Atlanta on the 4th of July weekend. We went to Stone Mountain Park for the 4th of July fireworks. Anybody ever been to Stone Mountain Park in Georgia? If you ever get a chance, go down there and see the fireworks and the laser show. Nobody has told them they lost the Civil War. It's quite interesting. They kind of think they won. <clears throat> but it's a, it was an amazing experience. But we realized within just a few weeks of joining this new ministry that had many close friends on the staff, that the ministry was in fact in trouble, that there was internal turmoil, that the fireworks were not limited to Stone Mountain Park, but they resided in our ministry office. And six months into our tenure there, either half the, uh, half the staff either was fired or quit in one week. And we said, Lord, what in the world is going on here? How, how can this be your will? We, we gave up careers and good-paying good jobs and, and, and our nice house. We've moved down here, and we're, you know, we're trusting you to bring in the funds for, the, for our ministry, and, and we're by ourselves. We have no family, and everything is coming apart. Now, interestingly, at the same time as that was happening, we joined a church, and we became friends with a family named the Smith family, Art and Denise and Caleb and Danielle and Jesse. Jesse was their youngest boy. At the time, he was about 15. He'd just been diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. Just as we got there, he had surgery, and they cut off the top of his skull to take out the tumor. And so the top of his head was flat, and he wore a special baseball cap that was actually a helmet to protect his head while it healed. And then they would go back in and put the top of his skull back on. It was unbelievable. And so we just watched this family and watched this young boy of 15 or 16 who loved Jesus and loved baseball journey through this difficulty. And we were going through painful things too, ministerially, but nothing like this. And we watched the Smith family. And about a year after all this took place, Jesse started to get headaches again, and he wasn't doing well. He wasn't feeling well. And the doctors there at Emory's Children's Hospital brought the family in. They said, the brain cancer is back. It's irreparable and inoperable. It will take your life, Jesse. To which Jesse said to the doctor, well, I know where I'm headed. How about you? The doctor walked out of the room, down to the nurse's station, put his face down on the counter, and started to weep. He'd never seen that kind of certainty in just a boy. As Jesse was literally dying, in the weeks before his death, his parents said, what, what do you want to have happen at the funeral? What, what do you want that to look like? And because he loved baseball and he loved the kids he went to high school with, he said, I'd like to have my funeral on the baseball diamond at Parkview High School. And his parents said, why do you want to do that? And he said, because I want you to take my casket and put it on home plate. And I want the theme of my funeral to be, Jesse Smith is safe at home. Isn't that something? I remember the Sunday morning, the pastor said, put my phone in your pocket because Jesse's this close to life and death. 
and Denise is going to call. And so I put the phone. Well, the pastor was praying for Jesse. The phone rang and Denise said, Jesse is gone. It's over. The next day, the pastor, we went over to Parkview High School and we met with the athletic director there. They were the state baseball champions. So they had this baseball diamond. It had artificial turf. I mean, it was beautiful. And we said, we'd like to have a funeral on your baseball diamond. He was a little confused and he, he thought about it. And he said, I don't think we're allowed to bury people on school property. <laughs> you know, you can get educated past usefulness at some, time, at some point, right? We said, no, we might have a funeral. Finally, he said, yeah, okay, you can do that. So we had the funeral there. Over 2,000 people came to the funeral. Close dozens of high school kids came. And as Jesse asked, we put his casket on home plate. Jesse was safe at home. While Jesse was so sick, he had become friends with Brett Butler, who played for the Atlanta Braves at the time. You might remember that name if you're old like me. And so Brett and his wife came to the funeral. And the family had decided that they wanted the gospel shared at the funeral. So when the funeral concluded, myself and Brett Butler went to center field and invited anybody that wanted to hear how you could have the same certainty that Jesse had to come to center field. And, and Brett and I walked out to center field and we turned and we turned around and we stood and then people started to come, including about half of the Parkview football team. And about 100 people receive Christ that afternoon. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's worth clapping for, amen? One of the last things that Jesse said at our church, the pastor said, what would you like to have happen through your life and death? And Jesse said, I would like for God to be glorified and I'd like for some of my friends, my schoolmates to come and know Jesus the way I know Jesus. That high school football team won the state quad A football championship. If you ever lived in the South, that's a big deal. 10,000 people at the game. At the end of the game, after they won, the football coach was interviewed over the loudspeakers and over TV. What made the difference in your team? You know, and the interviewer was expecting, well, you know, our offense was really good or they couldn't break through. And he said, what made the difference was Jesus Christ invaded this team. That changed everything. Amen? So we watched that and we thought, wow, what are we witnessing here? And experiences like that, while we were going through a difficulty, certainly contracted from what the Smiths went through, learned, caused us to learn that what is past is prologue. And all of that gets carried forward. And today, Denise runs a ministry that has seen dozens of women from the Middle East come to Christ. The mom. What's past is prologue. Let me give you two proverbs about our past, okay? Two proverbs about our past. We are products of our past, but we do not need to be prisoners to our past. Did you hear that? We are products of our past, but we do not need to be prisoners to our past. Our past shapes us, and it teaches us, but we cannot and we do not need to let it control us. You can be stuck in long-faded victories. Oh, remember back in the day? Or you can long for a day that is long past, or you can be, uh, become a prisoner to the pain of the past. But listen to what Paul writes, and he knows of what he speaks. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He, what does it say? Does anybody know? Is a new creation. The old has passed away all things. Do you hear me? Your mistakes, your sin, your shortcomings, your missteps, your disappointments, your despair, whatever it is, all things are made new. Hallelujah is right. All things are made new. Prisons of the past. I've seen a lot of these as a pastor. Regret. You prisoner to regret. Some people are prisoners to fear, to bitterness. We saw that in Naomi, didn't we, a week or two ago. Some people are prisoners to anger or humiliation. Or I talked about a week, I think, ago about revenge. Turn in your Bible very, very quickly to Mark 14. We don't have a lot of time. Turn in your Bible to Mark 14. Going to read a familiar verse, and I'm just going to take a minute and unpack it for you. Okay? You'll know the verse. Verse 72. Let me read it for you. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter, big disappointment, big failure, falls on his face, and Peter remembered how Jesus has said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down and wept, and he said, man, I have thought I was all that, and I have just fallen on my face, and I've blown it. He wept because he was humiliated about his own boasting. Don't worry about me, Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you, and yet he's blowing it. Now turn over to Acts chapter 4, quickly, Acts, Acts chapter 4, with that as the background. The denial and the humiliation on that night of Jesus' trial took place in the courtyard of Caiaphas. Most of us know that. And the person that gets the questioning going to Peter is one of Caiaphas' own servants. So without a doubt, we can suppose that the likelihood was that the story is this sort of gregarious, self-assured follower, key sidekick of Jesus, denied him. This servant girl probably said, oh yeah, I was there with Peter, and he's such a big talker, and I know it was Peter, but he's, no, no, I'm not with him, no, I'm not with him, and then he started crying. Something's amiss there. It's almost like he messed up. He was beside himself, just weeping there in the, in the courtyard. Huh. Now we get to Acts chapter 4. Let me set the scene. Peter and John are preaching in Jerusalem. This is likely about eight weeks or so after Peter has had that huge disappointment of himself. They've just healed a man in the temple court and the temple officials have not appreciated that and they are amped up at the teaching of the resurrection and they arrest Peter and John and they put him in jail overnight and the next day they come before Caiaphas. And all the other leading religious officials. And they asked him, how, how, how is it do you have the power to do this, right? 
Who gave you the authority to, to teach like this? Now let's pick up Peter's response at verse 10 of Acts 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. And then verse 13, listen to this. When they saw this boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. No mention by Caiaphas, hey, I heard you were uh, kind of messed up in my backyard, Pete. Aren't you the guy that, like, you didn't even want to be connected with this Jesus? And no, no mention of that. Caiaphas and the others are so overwhelmed with the boldness of these men and, and the compelling way in which they communicate this message of Christ that they're like, wow, these guys, they are committed. They know this Jesus. Peter is not a product, a prisoner of his past. Amen? It's such a beautiful thing. And if you have bumps in your past, then take them to the Lord and ask him to clarify them for you. Don't waste the pain and mistakes. Learn from them and let Jesus cleanse you from the sense of failure or shame or humiliation or anger or whatever it is you fill in the blank. If you have the courage, friends, to take that inventory, then you will grow and you will glean. Remember Naomi she was at one time completely captured by bitterness from the massive disappointments in life. But now she can see that God has not abandoned them, but is in fact preparing them through that past for greater things and is going to show his great love for them. Second proverb I want to give you this morning quickly. Processing our past lets us trust God in the present and be at peace about our future. If you process the past, and don't let it process you, if you process your past, it lets you trust God in the present and be at peace about your future. You know why history repeats itself? Because we do the same dumb things over and over. Okay. <laughs> Did you get nudged by your wife before you said that? I, want, I, just, wondered, I just wanted to check. I do the same dumb things over and over, right? And if we fail to remember... We are destined to repeat. Let me give you some verses. Psalm 139, 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be given any grievous way in me. Search me, God. Help me understand who I am, where I've been, and what is going on. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine themselves. Right? That's a, that's a communion verse, which we're going to take here in a few minutes. And so eat of the bread and drink. Look at your life. Is everything all right? Psalm 119, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. We have to remember where we've been. A few years ago, I was uh, on the road and I was in Ottawa and everything and I thought, you know what, that's going to be a long day. I'm going to stay overnight in Ottawa and then I'm going to drive back the next morning. So I get on Expedia and I look for hotels. And you know, you start out at like, you know, $2.99 a night. Well, I'm too cheap for that. Go down. 
and I get down to this place, and it's cheaper than just about everywhere else. And the picture doesn't look too bad, you know? And the next thing, the next thing close to it is 15 bucks more. So I'm like, I'm not paying 15 bucks more. I'm going to stay right there. So late that night, after dark, I get to this hotel. Now, the picture didn't show that the other half of the hotel that wasn't in the picture was boarded up. Yeah, you think I'm kidding you? I'm not. I was going to show you a picture of the place, but I thought, you know, maybe somebody's brother-in-law owns it or something. You know. I get into the room, which was pretty sketchy room, and there was a big sign on the wall. And I'm going to read you what it said. This is, I wrote it down, okay? This is what it said. Guest behavior. That's how it starts out. Police will be called if anything is stolen from this room, including towels, yeah, TV, bedding, or bathtub. Who steals a bathtub from the motel? What kind of people are staying there? Hey, hey, Harold, where'd you get that bathtub? Well, I was over at that motel and I just took it out in the night. My door is all scratched up. You know, because something's trying to get out. I'm lying in bed. I can hear scratching, lying in bed. I'm not sleeping well. About three in the morning, this big four by four truck, which is outside my room, starts up and backs out, and I'm lying there thinking, I bet he took the bathtub. <laughs> right? It's four in the morning. And I say to myself, Steve, why do you want to save 15 bucks? The next time you're on the road, remember this so you don't do the same dumb things. My wife, she will never stay in a hotel that I book unless it's like the Hampton Inn or a brand name. Right? Why don't we look in the rearview mirror and take inventory? Let me give you a couple things. First, because in joyful experiences, we think that we will spoil the delight if we dissect it, right? Let's just enjoy the moment. Let's not dissect it, right? We have a great time on a trip or a wonderful friendship during a season of our life or an unscripted, refreshing encounter with a, a new person. And we just, we just want to let it be. Eh, it just happened. Friends, I encourage you to reflect on those great moments in life. Reflect and rejoice. And rejoice. Right? If we don't, we miss the lessons to be learned because the voice and hand of God comes through those experiences. Those mountaintop experiences will sustain us and fuel us for the valleys that come. Amen? Absolutely. Psalm 66, 5 and 6. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. What were the lessons? Well, to trust God. He makes a way right when we need it. Don't be afraid to wade in, even though we can't swim. God likes when we trust him in the impossible. And when you reflect on that and rejoice in that, that sustains you when the valleys come. But secondly, in the painful experiences, we, we don't reflect because we don't want to revisit what we just experienced. We just want to release it. Some events that are incredibly destructive can be incredibly instructive. That's what happened with the life and death of Jesse Smith for me, and I think for his own family. 
So don't waste the pain. Sometimes we don't want to go there because we, we, in fact, help make the mess. We contributed to the mess. Now, remember Paul writes a verse that people often quote at the absolute worst possible time, and it's Romans 8.28. You know, I'm sorry that your husband was run over by a bus, but Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good. What Paul is not saying is that all things are good things. Our world is full of painful, evil experiences. But God, in his sovereignty, in his ability, is able to take those things and turn them around. And it might not be in this life, friends. It might be through the lens of eternity. He takes those and he uses them for his glory. And believe it or not, for our good. I think if you were to ask Art and Denise Smith, they could look back today and say, we'd never want to experience losing a son again, but God has used that for good, for good. And Paul, when he says this, remember, he's at least an accessory to murder, at least, maybe worse, right? And if you read Philippians chapter 3, I won't ask you to go there for the sake of time this morning, but if you read Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 3, you'll read, you'll read that Paul reflects on God's goodness and glory to him, right? First he talks about the painful, and then the pericope changes in verse number 7, and he talks about the glorious learnings in life. He talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, educated in the law. But then he says, you know what? I was a zealot, right? Like I was a persecutor of the church. But he's learned from that. And then the, the story changes. And he says, whatever I counted as, what? Loss for the sake of Christ. And there's been lots of losses. He says, in fact, I count everything as loss. But you know what? God has taken that and flipped that over. And it's a new day. Because if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation, without a doubt. And so we go back to Naomi. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed, this Boaz, by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. I felt forsaken, Naomi saying. I felt abandoned by God. I was bitter and I was alone. But now God has magnified this kindness in me. What a difference. God has honored both me and Ruth, and in fact, he's honored my dead husband, Elimelech, and, and, and everything's changed now. And I see the hand of God and the goodness of God. What is past, friends, is prologue. It's preparation, but only if you carry forward the lessons of life that God allows in every experience, and he will redeem those, the painful ones and the great ones. And the way to maturity requires deep self-awareness, even when it's painful. Remember Peter. It's the only way you need, you will know what you need from God, is to reflect back. God, this is, what I need, this is where I've been. I, I, I'm a prisoner to this. I need to be freed from this. God, I rejoice in this in my past. You are so good. I can trust you in my future. And God will help you, amen? He will help you. I found out a few months ago, I was having all kinds of computer trouble, and like I, computer, when it goes beyond wiggle the plug, I'm done. Okay? I'm not a tech guy at all. 
But my computer guy, who's on call, who's a wonderful guy, he said this. He said, you know, uh, Windows 10, it has system restore, system restore turned off by default. But it doesn't restore because it's turned off by default. You know, I got thinking about that afterwards. I thought, you know what? When we come to Christ, restore is turned on. He fixes us if we let him for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, we love you. And Father, may we this day, may there be those amongst us who see with a fresh way something in their past that was painful and hurtful and difficult that they can say that was actually preparation that that even though I would never choose to go through that again you will take that and use that for your glory and for my good and I trust you in that I may not even fully understand it Lord but there may there be those amongst us this day here or watching online that that they may come to that place and say Lord I trust you you are a good God and I live in a broken hurting world and I get dinged by all of that but you're a good God and I want you to take that and redeem it, that my past is preparation for the days ahead and ultimately for eternity. Because that's the kind of God you are. You are good. I trust you. I love you. Amen. And amen.